Good morning again. This week we finished chapter 12 in Ezekiel, covering verses 17 to 28, and I've called it, The Doubting of God's Word Leads to Disobedience. So I'll pray, then we'll get into it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how precious it is, and Lord, all the good that it does for us. Lord, it gives us hope. It brings healing. Lord, it has all these awesome promises through which we can overcome the corruption that is in the world through lust. And Lord, if we only partake of these promises, Lord, if we read them and believe them and trust them, Lord, then we can experience your power working in our lives. But it all starts with reading them first and understanding them. So help us to do that more today in Jesus' name. Amen. So our memory verse first, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, nice big voices. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So, two main things today. In verses 17 to 20, we have the sign of eating bread and water, the great fear. So Ezekiel is going to act out another sermon. Remember, the prophets in the Old Testament, a lot of the time they actually had things they did to communicate their message. And basically, a quick summary of this part of it is when they're in captivity, in the siege, they're going to be like literally shaking with fear and terror. And their self-confidence will be replaced by fear and terror, their plenty with scarcity, and their hope with despair. All because they trusted in a false message. And the second main point is, along those lines, the false prophets cause the people to doubt and therefore disobey God's message. So this is like a revelation or a revealing of why the people were so rebellious against God. It's because there were false prophets, false teachers, telling them to believe the wrong thing. So the false prophets were telling the people that the message of the true prophets was false. In other words, they were telling the people to doubt God's word. And that is what is happening in a lot of the church today. There's a lot of teaching going on which is causing us to doubt the authority of God's word, the inspiration of God's word, and it's causing many to abandon a close walk with God. So very applicable what we're learning today. What happened back then is happening now, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. So we can learn lessons from what's gone before. So let's start with verses 17 to 20, the sign of eating bread with water and great fear. Verse 17, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking, and drink your water with trembling and anxiety, and say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the land of Israel, They shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water with dread, so that her land may be emptied of all who are in it because of the violence of those who dwell in it. Then the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste, 
and the land shall become desolate, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So, verse 18 says, Eat your bread with quaking, and drink your water with trembling and fear. Again, this is another action sermon, another sign, as it's called in the scriptures, of the coming siege of Jerusalem. From this point in time, when Ezekiel's giving this message, it's about five years away. And God, five years before it happens, is telling the people what it's going to be like if you're trapped in Jerusalem during this time. They're going to be so completely traumatized that they're going to be literally shaking with fear. And a quote from Wearsby, he was illustrating the tragic condition of the people in Jerusalem during the Babylonian siege. They would have very little food and would eat it with fear and trembling because it might well be their last meal. In verse 19 it says, Say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the land of Israel. So sometimes God talks to the leadership, and here he's talking to the common people, both those in Jerusalem and Judah, and also those who are scattered among the nations in Babylon. And it's kind of like he's asking them in these following verses to consider who they are listening to or trusting in, the true prophets or the false prophets, because it's going to make a difference. In verse 20, his message to the people is, Then the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste, and the land shall become desolate. So by the end of the siege, all the cities that had once been inhabited around the area of the southern part of Israel called Judah, they're all going to be destroyed, and they're going to be empty of people. The Babylonians are going to do two things. They're going to take away the people, take them captive, and destroy everything that's left behind. In verse 19, so that her land may be emptied of all who are in it because of the violence and of all those who dwell in it. So it's because of the violence of all who dwell in it. And this is God's justice. God repays violence and murder with violence and murder. As they had murdered and severely oppressed the poor and needy, so they would be murdered and experience severe oppression. Now we come to the next main part, Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 21 and 28, and I've called this, The false prophets cause the people to doubt and therefore disobey God's message. So, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, what is this proverb that you people have about the land of Israel, which says, The days are prolonged, and every vision fails. Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, The days are at hand, and the fulfillment of every vision. For no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. So notice that, false vision or flattering divination. For I am the Lord, I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed. It's very clear, isn't it? No more false divination. These false prophets, their message will be proven false when I perform what I said I was going to do. So I'll read that bit again. The days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. For no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord, I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed or delayed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word and perform it, says the Lord God. 
So he's telling them, and he will also do it. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, look, the house of Israel is saying, The vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be postponed any more, but the word which I speak will be done, says the Lord God. So, he's covering uh, verse 22, the days are prolonged. So, simply put, the false prophets were telling the people that everything will continue as it was, and that there's no need to worry, nothing's going to change, just chill. And in verse 22 it says, and every vision fails. The false prophets are basically saying to the people, listen, these other prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, oh, let's call them the prophets of doom, all right, they've got all this bad news for you, but look, they've been saying it for a long time. But it hasn't come to pass. So it probably will never come to pass. So don't worry about it. So we're going to look at why God prolongs his judgment. And this is a really important concept in the scriptures. So the first application we come to today is the days are prolonged. And again, it's important we understand that God prolonging or delaying the judgment was an act of mercy. It's an important theme or principle we see throughout the scripture and it gives us great insight into the heart and character of God. And I quote from Feinberg, he said, A saying had become current among them because God's long-suffering, which should have led to repentance, was made an argument against his word. And so this is a common thing that people say against Christians today. We'll get into it later. But for now, let's read Second Peter 3, 9 and 10. And the Lord explains why he delays his judgment. The Lord does not delay and is not tardy or slow about what he promises, according to some people's conception of slowness. To us it seems slow, right? But he is long-suffering, extraordinarily patient toward you, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should turn to repentance. So, God is giving them year after year after year to repent because he has his extraordinary patience and long-suffering love toward us. He does not want any to perish, but that all should turn to repentance. Now, verse 10 in Second Peter 3, 9 and 10 tells us that there will come a day when God's patience will run out. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will vanish, pass away with a thunderous crash, and the material elements of the universe will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up so what I want to point out here is that there's this tension between God's love and his righteous wrath. What I mean by God's righteous wrath is his hot displeasure, his complete disdain and absolute hatred of sin. And by connection, we can also say he also hates the sinner who by nature is sinful and therefore sins. So I've got this diagram from the American Gospel Christ Crucified documentary. And it's got the three circles. One is God with his holiness, and then on either side there's wrath and love. And so basically, to simply explain this, God is absolutely holy. He's perfect. 
Because of that, he is also loving and wrathful. So we can say that because God's love is limitless, so is his wrath. He's not wrathful or loving. He's both wrathful and loving. Now, you may have been taught, as I was when I was growing up, but doesn't God love the sinner but hate the sin? I can understand that God would hate sin, but how can God hate the sinner? I mean, how can God both hate and love someone at the same time? And that's a bit of a quandary, isn't it? Conundrum? I'm going to go back to Adam and Eve and use them as an example to show that even we as human beings can have love and hate for the same person at the same time. We can have a righteous anger or wrath towards someone as well as love them at the same time. So Adam and Eve, they had Cain and Abel as well as other children, but we're focusing on Cain and Abel now. And, you know, they grew up and they would have loved them. It would have been, you know, half-decent family, I'm imagining. Not perfect, but good family. But then Cain deliberately and brutally kills Abel because he's jealous. Now, would Adam and Eve have stopped loving Cain? Their child? I don't think so. I don't think any parent can stop loving their own child. It's like there's a lifelong connection. He's my son, I bore him and I love him, therefore he will always have a special place in my heart. So I don't think they'll stop loving him. But despite their love for Cain, do you think that Adam and Eve would also have been really grieved and hurt by Cain's murder of their other son or one of their other sons? and therefore be angry toward him? Is that possible? I think so. So just imagine the conflicting emotions going through their minds simultaneously, both love and righteous, wrathful anger. They would have wanted justice, but at the same time would have been reluctant to perform that justice, meaning capital punishment for murder, on their son. So this is, for me, a good picture that you know, we know that this person, Cain, deserves to die because he murdered someone, and especially one of your other kids. But you don't want him to die because he's your son. You see this tension, the love and the wrath at the same time? So apply this to God. In a similar way, we are God's special creation. God created man in his own image and chose to love him unconditionally. So whether you're in the garden and Adam and Eve are perfect and nothing's gone wrong and God's walking in the cool of the garden with them, enjoying fellowship with them. Obviously, he loves them. But he also has chosen to love us post-fall, right? He's committed to loving us even after the fall of mankind, even when we're sinners and we have a nature that hates him. So, When Adam sinned, mankind became sinful by nature and therefore absolutely morally repulsive to God. So I want to try and explain that, explain what that means. Okay. So imagine that a big fat rat ate its way into your mattress and then died. Okay. Now, 
The first night you smell something, but you put up with it. However, by the seventh night, you can't even enter your bedroom because the stench of the rotting rat is so strong. It causes you to throw up, and you literally can't enter the room because you feel so nauseous. Then you investigate, and you discover the rotting rat in your mattress. With a gloved hand, you grab the maggot-infested rat by the tail and run outside. When you throw it, okay, now, just pretend that that rat could talk right then, and the rat would say, Excuse me, sir. How long do I need to stay away? And you would say, Forever. I don't like you. You stink. I can't stomach your presence. Not now, not tomorrow, not ever. You stinking, revolting, rotting rat. I don't like you. Go away. Forever. And that's the problem we have, isn't it? We stink. We have a sinful nature, which is like a rotting rat inside of us. When Adam died, I'm talking about spiritual death. We can consider that he kind of started rotting on the inside, yeah? We're going to find out what that smells like in a spiritual sense soon. So, there, the physical revulsion described in the rotting rat analogy is an example of the moral revulsion, anger, or wrath a just and holy God experiences when exposed to evil. So, even we as humans are outraged or grossed out by certain sins. So like incest, rape, abuse of any kind, abortion, pornography, child pornography, human trafficking, sex slaves, grooming, pedophilia, and those things. Why? Because we have a conscience and a basic knowledge of right and wrong. And it's our conscience that reacts with moral disgust to the evil that is around us. So what we need to understand is that God is perfectly holy and therefore infinitely more sensitive to the moral stench of sin. And as I was saying before, it's like our hearts are dead and rotting and the stench of our sinful nature is simply unbearable to God. We can't smell ourselves very much because we are so used to the smell. So imagine you, know, you go camping for a month in the desert and it's really hot and you only one change of clothes, you know, no shower, no water, just enough to drink. You come back, now you can't smell yourself. But everyone else sure can. <laughs> and they'll soon tell you, would you please go away and go and have a shower and get changed? Change your clothes, you know? So basically, what I've said that for is to help you understand that God both loves mankind, but also feels a fierce, righteous indignation or wrath toward fallen man because of his sinful nature, which by nature hates him. No wonder he doesn't like it to be around him if it hates him, right? So now we're going to prove from the scriptures that sin is not divorced or separated from the sinner, that when God judges sin, he will also judge the person who committed the sin. And by extension, if he hates the sin, he also hates the sinner, okay? So I'm just going to consider one of many verses that talks about this. And Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6, it says, O God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. You cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. Okay, so God hates sin. We know that. That's fair enough. Therefore, the proud may not stand in your presence. For you, God, hate all who do evil. You will destroy those who tell lies. The Lord detests murderers and deceivers. So it's not just the evil actions, words and thoughts that God hates. 
you know, where it says, you take no pleasure in wickedness, you cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. But also, God hates the one who practices those evil deeds. It says there, for you, God, hate all who do evil. You will destroy those who tell lies. So it's not the sin that goes to hell, it's the sinner that goes to hell. It's one who commits a sin. And it's interesting here, you will destroy those who tell lies. Even lying is sufficient to make us an object of God's wrath, his divine judgment against sin. So often we think of lying as just a small sin, and we can often excuse a white lie as being okay. But in God's economy, sin is sin. It's all the same. It's all equally offensive to him because it's all rebellion against him. Now, that's not to say that different sins have different practical consequences, but sin as a whole has the same consequence. If I only told one white, so-called white lie, it would still be enough to damn me to eternal punishment because I've broken God's law, you see. So, coming back to the phrase, God loves the sinner but hates the sin, it's not true. It's not true that God loves a sinner but hates a sin. Rather, the Bible clearly says that God hates and loves the sinner. It's not either or, it's both and. And I got this off the American Gospel DVD watching on Friday at Bible study. It's like God has both hands up. One is holding back his own wrath towards guilty sinners, which is all mankind, who are fully deserving of his divine wrath, while the other hand is beckoning or wooing or drawing those same guilty sinners to come to himself and receive his forgiveness. It's that love and the hate at the same time. So again, just to explain this, the paradox is that God is both angry with sinners and loves them at the same time. However, one day both hands will drop. God's wrath will be poured out on unrepentant men who has run out of time to respond to God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We'll read that in Romans chapter 2 soon. If sinful man does not accept God's invitation to receive his forgiveness and redemption through the death or the blood of the Messiah, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then sinful man will remain condemned, as it says in John 3.18, and therefore be separated from God's love. And we say separated from God, but if you look at the scriptures, as we will soon, we're not separated from God completely. We're only separated from his love, from his favor. So the unrepentant man will suffer the wrath of God in the presence of the Lamb in the lake of fire. And you can read that in Revelation 14.10, Matthew 10.28 and Psalm 139 verse 8, all related to that concept. Those who are unsaved and who remain unsaved when they die, they will experience the wrath of God in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus. So similar to Peter, what Peter said, as we read before in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, Paul describes God's forbearance and long-suffering of our sin, what we could call the prolonging of our judgment, like we read in Ezekiel. And he describes this in Romans chapter 2. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself, for you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. 
And I've got it all note there, because God is a just God, he must judge all sin. So notice verse 2, and we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. The sinner will be punished. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think that you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this prolonging of your judgment mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Okay, remember, this is going back to the book of Ezekiel. We're using this as a picture to explain what's going on with the people of Ezekiel. The prolonging of judgment was there not because God was lazy, not because he'd forgotten, not because he was unable to do anything, but because he wanted to give them time to repent. But if we don't, verse 5, but because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment or wrath for yourself. For a day of anger or wrath is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers, but will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing evil. So, the false prophets telling the people in Ezekiel's day, just keep on doing whatever you want. Live in a way that's going to bring yourself pleasure. Just keep coming to the temple, keep on being religious, keep singing the temple songs on the Sabbath and bring your sacrifice the rest of the week, do what you want. They're living for themselves. They're refusing to obey the truth. What did Jeremiah and Ezekiel say? Get out. Surrender to the Babylonians and you'll be okay. And they said, no way. And what happened? Trouble and calamity. So in a practical sense, we see that in the book of Ezekiel. There was trouble and calamity for those who didn't listen. And for us today, we're talking about a spiritual sense. When we die, there's going to be hell to pay. Romans chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 from the Amplified Version. And do you think or imagine, O man, when you judge and condemn those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape God's judgment and elude his sentence and adverse verdict? Or are you so blind as to trifle and presume upon and despise and underestimate the wealth of his kindness and forbearance and long-suffering presence? Are you unmindful or actually ignorant of the fact that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repent, to change your mind and inner man to accept God's will? So basically, you know you know about disease, and we have a disease, let's say pneumonia, and if I start running up a hill, I'm going to be huffing and puffing. So the disease is the pneumonia, and the symptom of the disease is that I have trouble breathing when I'm exercising. And so the same thing goes with sin. Our sin nature is the disease, and the symptom of that is that we sin. So the problem isn't really that we sin. The problem is that we have a sin nature. It's our sin nature that causes us to sin. Why didn't Jesus sin? Because he didn't have a sin nature. We're born with one. We need this 
sin nature removed, we need a new nature, a new heart, a heart that desires to please and love God, a heart that will submit to God. And thankfully, this is exactly what God promises. So let's read our memory verse again. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So, I wanted to describe to you how smelly our sinful nature is. So I'm going to read some scriptures that confirms the innate moral bankruptcy and depravity of our old or human or sinful nature and why it needs to be done away with. So firstly, James 1, 13-15. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So what's a big problem? Our own sinful desires. Okay, They entice us. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. It's hostile. You don't want to live with someone who's hostile towards you, and God doesn't want to live with a sinner. Okay, The sinner is hostile to God, an enemy of God, in open rebellion against God, and literally an enemy. That's why those who are still under the control of a sinful nature can never please God. So don't try and obey God on your own strength, because you can't do it. And the last one, and the most powerful one, I think, is Mark seven twenty to 23 This is Jesus speaking. And then Jesus added, It is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So Jesus says that we are vile because we have all this vile stuff in us. And so it's no wonder that God can't stomach us. And I look at it like this. Jesus in these verses in Mark is like tearing away the external veneer of self-righteousness, of our moral goodness that we think we have. And lovingly but honestly shows us who we really are on the inside. We are morally bankrupt, depraved, degenerate, reprobate. And this is an accurate description of our vile, sinful nature. So, summary. God's love and God's wrath. Okay, So God's love, how does he demonstrate his love? He prolongs the days before the judgment comes because he loves us and desperately wants us to choose to accept by faith the gift of forgiveness that became possible because of his son's sacrificial death on the cross in our place. The shedding of his blood, his death, is the payment for our sins. And God's wrath. God must eventually judge the unrepentant sinner because they are inherently morally vile because of their sinful nature. They will remain cut off or separated from God's love forever, suffering eternal torment in the lake of fire. Like that rat, you don't want it back? God doesn't want the sinner back either. It stinks. 
Okay? Our sinful nature stinks. And that's why God is going to remove our sinful nature when we leave this body. So, application. This is a second application on the days of prolonged. And this is not talking about the Israelites so much now. This is kind of more modern day, this first one. It's those who don't believe in God. Okay? And this is a accusation that people bring against Christianity. Why does God allow evil? Okay? And so the atheist or the agnostic will say that, well, God allows evil to continue because he is incompetent, weak, or doesn't exist, and is therefore unable to judge sin. Okay, again, that's the atheist or agnostic. Now, how does God answer this charge? Psalm 14, verse 1 and 4 and 5. Only fools say in their hearts there is no God. They are corrupt and all their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. Will those who do evil never learn? They eat up my people like bread and wouldn't think of praying to the Lord. Notice that they wouldn't think of praying to the Lord. But what's the end result for these guys? These atheists, these agnostics? Terror will grip them, for God is with those who obey him. So they might say, oh, despising God's goodness and his forbearance and his patience, they say that, oh, God's weak, not understanding that he is actually loving them. But God says, you're a fool to say that there is no God. One day terror will grip you. Now, this second one, applies to the Jews of Ezekiel's day and it can apply to us today as well, those who are in the church. And this second excuse that people give of why there is evil in the world and why God allows things to continue, it goes like this. God allows evil to continue because he is accepting of their sinful attitudes and behaviours. They make a God in their own image. So we're talking about their religious hypocrite. So what does God say to this person? He warns them in Psalm 50, verses 16 to 22. But God says to the wicked, Why bother reading my decrees and pretending to obey my covenant? Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? Why bother pretending? Yeah? Why bother reading, reciting my decrees, like reading the Bible, and pretending to obey? For you refuse my discipline and treat my words like trash. So the hypocrite, the one who doesn't obey the Lord, how are they treating his word? Like trash. This is from the New Living Paraphrase. It's very powerful. For you refuse my discipline and treat my words like trash. You're pretending to obey, giving lip service. When you see thieves, you approve of them, and you spend your time with adulterers. Your mouth is filled with wickedness, and your tongue is full of lies. You sit around and slander your brother, your own mother's son. Now, this is the key verse here, verse 21. While you did all this, I remained silent, and you thought I didn't care. And in the New King James, that phrase, you thought I didn't care, it says, you thought I was altogether like you. But now I will rebuke you, listing all my charges against you. Repent, all of you who forget me, or I will tear you apart, and no one will help you. So again, these people, these religious hypocrites, 
They make a God in their own image. They make a God in their mind which approves of their behaviour, allows their behaviour, and they're treating God's word like trash. So they want to continue in their wicked behaviour, and so they, as I said before, they invent a God. They make an idol in their own head, in their own heart, a God that would allow this kind of behaviour. And God addresses this very clearly in verse 21. While you did all this, I remained silent. Why did he remain silent? What's his motive for not doing anything? Because he's loving them and giving them time to repent. Okay, That's the true motive. That's what we've been through before, earlier on in the sermon. But here, God is saying what these guys are thinking. He knows what people are thinking. He knows their excuses. And verse 22, Repent all of you who forget me, or I will tear you apart and no one will help you. And moving on to verses 24 and 25 from Ezekiel 12, For no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord, I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word and perform it, says the Lord God. So five years, it's all going to be done, all finished. Everything that Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, all the other prophets had said would happen would all be fulfilled exactly. It would be fulfilled. No more delay. So again, just to recap, just as the Bible teachers and prophets in Ezekiel's day thought that because the prophecies of judgment given by the prophets were slow to come, then the prophecies of coming judgment must not be true. It's a dangerous mistake to make, and it's to presume on the love of God. And we can do this in our own lives. So it's not in your notes, but we can do this in our own lives. We can continue to sin, and God will not judge us straight away. Why? Because he's giving us time to repent before we have to come to that hard place of, bang, you know, divine discipline, which is very painful. And so, you know... We can be doing things and God will let us keep our family for a while. God will let us keep our job for a while. God will let us you know, keep on doing what we're doing even though we're still sinning. But there will come a time when God's patience is like, you know, that's enough. I'm applying this to the Christian now, right? That's enough. You need to stop. Bang. And he will force it to stop. So, another application. This time it's, it will no more be postponed. So this mistaking God's patience, mercy, and long-suffering for weakness or acceptance is happening right now as predicted as we await the imminent return of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 So reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-7 to Most importantly, I want to remind you, okay, it's most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Okay, what are they saying? Is Jesus really going to come back? These scoffers, these people who are saying, look, just do what you want. And in verse 5, 
They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water, and then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Again, they're deliberately forgetting that God has judged in the past and he will do it again. So let's go through some of those judgments, see what God did and see what man's response was to the various judgments. So the first one was a flood, and the Bible uses this as an example many times in the scriptures. So God gave the pre-flood world 120 years to repent in Genesis 6.3. And in 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, part of it says, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Notice that? Once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So the divine long-suffering, again, it's what we've been talking about here. God's love, God's giving people a chance to repent. So the whole time the ark was being built, most likely 120 years, Noah, it says in the New Testament, was a preacher of righteousness. He was preaching, but no one listened. Only eight people, Noah's immediate family, actually believed what Noah was saying. He was a bit like Ezekiel, had no one believing him, no one listening. And can you just imagine, <laughs> you know, Noah doing this, preaching, that there's going to be a worldwide flood. I mean, I doubt there'd ever even been a flood. And then probably, what's a flood? And then, you know, first year they might go a bit worried, and second year they're going, well, you said that you've been saying this for a year now, and 10 years, you've been saying this for 10 years, Noah. 20 years, 30 years, 100 years, 119 years. Come on, Noah. Preach something new, will you? <laughs> but eventually, the invitation to receive forgiveness expired, Noah was shut into the ark by God. God closed the door. There's only one way in. And there's no more chance of salvation for the coming judgment, and all those mockers were destroyed by the floodwaters. And again, the invitation to receive forgiveness had expired. The same thing happened in the Babylonian captivity. God had been warning the people of Israel for hundreds of years. If you go right back to Deuteronomy in Moses' day, God was faithful to warn them, if you continue in your disobedience and rebel against me, you will be taken as captives to a distant land. And once again, the people looked at how long God had been warning them and thought, well, if it hasn't happened yet, that was 400 years ago or whatever, 500 years, I don't think it's going to happen. We'll be all right. <laughs> but guess what? Five years later, they're conquered by the Babylonians, yeah? So once again, God's invitation to repent expired and those who didn't repent were destroyed in their judgment. And the last one is future, the future judgment, the judgment of the world by fire and in reference to the second coming of Jesus. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? What happened to it? It's been 2,000 years. You've been saying this for 2,000 years. Come on. You know, aren't you going to give up on that story now? And they'll say, from before the time of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Second Peter 3, 4. So, people sometimes use this verse in Revelation 22, verse 20, and they say, yeah, well, Jesus said he was coming quickly. Or they'll say he was coming soon. Well, let's read that verse and see what it actually means. 
Because this is a common thing that someone will come to you and say, hey, Jesus says he's going quickly. Well, it's been 2,000 years. I think he's forgotten. So Revelation 22 verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, yeah? So we need to understand that the word quickly, and it can be translated soon, but it shouldn't be here. What it means is when Jesus does come, there's not going to be much warning. The rate of prophecies being fulfilled will speed up dramatically. And before you know it, he will be here. So to describe this simply, the events prior to the second coming will happen quickly or in a hurry. Quickly is not a description of how long before Jesus returns, but rather what it will be like when Jesus does return. And so a practical analogy, you're driving from Sydney to Perth, and you leave Sydney, and I don't know if there's a Perth sign in Sydney. I don't think there would be. You might drive 1,000, 2,000 k's, but you know you're heading towards Perth. You know you're heading towards your destination, but there's no signs. Then as you get closer, you might see a sign, and then another 1,000 kilometers, you see the next sign, and then maybe another few hundred kilometers, you see the next one, you know, through Victoria and South Australia. And then you hit Kalgoorlie, and you're going along the Great Eastern Highway, and you see signs for Perth every 50 k's or so, and then more and more frequent as you get close to Perth. And so imagine those signs are prophetic events. For 2,000 years, nothing much happened. It was quiet. You're driving along the road of time, and nothing's happening. There's no signs. But then, as you get really close, the signs keep getting more and more frequent. And that's basically what it's like for us. In the last 70 years especially, there's been a huge increase in the rate of prophecies being fulfilled. Israel becoming a nation and becoming green and becoming a superpower and not being defeated by their enemies, the battles they'd face, who they'd fight, all those things. And today, in these last few years, it almost seems like it's every week there's another piece of the prophetic puzzle falling into place. And it's just speeding up, speeding up. It's like revving your engine. And God is giving us sign after sign that his return is near. Now, Jesus in his day warned the people the Jews, the Jewish leaders, that they would face judgment because they failed to recognize the signs of the times. And in their case, the precise prophecies concerning the first coming. So, back to Ezekiel, what do they do? They missed the signs of the times. Okay, God was promising judgment and they missed the signs, they missed the warnings. The first coming, there was warnings there, there were signs. Jesus was coming, the first coming of Christ. They missed it. We should not make the same mistake today with the prophecies regarding the second coming of Christ. And actually, did you realize that the scoffers are actually a fulfillment of prophecy? Because the Bible said they would happen. So we actually need people to scoff for prophecy to be fulfilled. So thank you for those who are scoffing, because now Jesus can come back. <laughs> so to finish the application here, be ready or be ashamed. A practical application for us. So, Jesus warns us to be ready, waiting and looking expectantly for his quick return. And our attitude towards the rapture and the second coming of Christ really do affect the way we live. So I'm going to read a bit from Matthew 24, starting at verse 32. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, 
the signs of the end times. If you read prior to this, he's been through the abomination of desolation and, and several other signs of the end times, right? In the same way, when you see all these things, the signs of the times, you know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. And a comment from David Guzik here to explain the fig tree budding. When a fig tree buds, there is an inevitable result. Summer is near and fruit is coming. In the same way, when these signs are seen, the coming of Jesus in glory with his church to this world will inevitably follow. Again, a quote from David Guzik. Continuing on in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Meaning that every prophecy will sign will literally be fulfilled. Verse 36, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat or the ark. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. So what's Jesus saying here? He's predicting very clearly that most will not be aware that he is coming back despite all the prophecies literally coming to pass. And Jesus then goes on to show the difference between those who are purifying themselves by looking to his coming and those who are not. So Matthew 24 verses 45-51 he says this A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I'll tell you the truth. The master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. Verse 48 is key here. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while. This is the same thing that the Israelites back in Ezekiel's day said. Nah, God isn't going to come back for a while. God's judgment isn't for a while. We can do what we want. Verse 49. And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So why the difference in behavior and attitude between those who are anticipating the soon or quick return of the master and those who weren't? Okay, well, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 gives us the answer. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. So we're looking forward to being in the physical presence of Christ. That's our hope, yeah? When he comes back to get us at the rapture. Verse 3 in First John chapter 3. And all who have this eager expectations will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. So I'll say that again, all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure, just as Christ is pure. Now, a little scenario to help you understand this. Those who are parents, or maybe you're a teenager, either way, okay, 
imagine your parents and you've got a teenage son and you go away on holidays for three months and you leave your 15-year-old teenage son at home and you say, we'll see you in three months. Now, what do you think is going to happen to the house in that three months? That 15-year-old is going to have a huge temptation to just let the house go to rack and ruin. And he knows that he can do what he wants, he can have people over, all that kind of stuff. And as long as it's all cleaned up at the end of the three months, he can get away with it, yeah? But what if, we'll change the situation, right? What if the parents tell their teenage son that they are going for a holiday, but they don't know how long they're going to be away? They could come back at any time. We could be gone for a day. We could be gone for three months. We don't know. And now the teenager has a strong motivation to keep the house clean. He doesn't want his parents to come back and find the house trashed. And they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? So it's only those who hold to the pre-tribulation rapture that have this extra motivation to keep themselves pure. Because I'm not saying that just because you don't hold to the pre-tribulation rapture view that you're all going to live a wild life and fall away from God. But they don't have this extra motivation to keep themselves pure. Those who believe in the mid- or post-tribulation rapture, what they're looking forward to is the tribulation. They're not looking for the return of Jesus. They're looking for the tribulation. It's like, well, I've got to this point. I can do what I want until the tribulation starts, and then I need to start getting serious. But with the pre-tribulation rapture view, there are no prophecies that must be fulfilled before Jesus comes back to take his bride, his church, back to heaven to be with him. And therefore, we are living in this constant, imminent expectation that he could come back at any time for us. And we don't want to be ashamed. We want to be ready. So, another passage that clearly shows that one of the main motivations for living a righteous life is the rapture, is... Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Okay, All who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. So let's read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What's our motivation? Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify us for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. So one of the main motivations that we have is that Jesus could come back today. And we want to be ready. We don't want to be ashamed. We want to be rewarded. So. To sum up, don't listen to the false teachers and prophets of our day who encourage people not to repent, but instead to live for themselves, to seek to have a good life now and not be willing to suffer now and have the good life later, in the next life. So if you share their message, if you agree with their message, then like the majority of the nation of Israel, you also share their judgment. Instead, hold fast to the clear teaching of the scriptures. Study hard to show yourself to be a worker approved by God, one who can rightly divide the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 So let's leave it there. You've got to know your Bibles. 
you need to know what is true, what is false, so you are not swayed by false teaching, which is going to lead you to fall away from God. Father, I thank you for the warning that we have in the book of Ezekiel where the people were listening to the false prophets and they said, nah, hasn't happened yet. It'll never happen. We'll be all right. We can live for ourselves. We don't have to repent. Don't have to change. Lord, help us to be aware of your imminent return. Lord, you could come literally any day. And Lord, even if it's not today, it doesn't matter. We're still living, wanting to be found pure in you. And there's no greater motive, Lord, I believe, than to be wanting to be found righteous and faithful when you come back. Because you don't know when that day is going to be. Help us to do this, Father, Lord. Help us to number our days and to gain a heart of wisdom and to know that this world is not going to go on forever, even though it feels like it, day after day, week after week. There will come a day when it will finish and Jesus will come back. Help us to live for that day, we pray, when Jesus comes for his church, his bride, and takes us up to be with him and rescues us from the wrath to come in the tribulation. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.